Let's pray together. Father, as we continue to sing your praises, how thankful we are that the truths undergirding them, the truths that give birth to this kind of praise and adoration are unchangeable. You are today what you have always been. And the promise of your word is that you will be tomorrow and into all the days that lie ahead eternally, you will be the same. There is no part of your character that could be improved upon, no part of your eternal work that has yet to be determined. You are perfect in every way, and our hearts rest in your perfection and in your unchangeableness. Thank you that you alone are God. Thank you for your eternal word. The Lord Jesus said, not one little dot of it, not one little cross of it, as we cross our T's and dot our I's, not one, one part of it will fail. And so we open your word with great anticipation this morning and ask that you would bring this eternal, unchangeable, life-giving word to bear upon our hearts, not simply that we may know truth, but that we may be changed by it. And I ask, great God, that the work you've promised to do by your spirit would be done that that divine summons that you have promised to issue would be issued this morning and that those who sit under the preaching of your word, not just here but in assemblies all around the world on this day, all who hear that divine summons would respond in faith, turning away from their sins and turning to the living Christ who alone is the Savior of the world. Give us eyes to see your truth. Give us ears to hear it. Give us tender and humble and obedient hearts to respond to it and strengthen our wills that we may go from this place determined to live according to it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in my spare time, I've been working on my medical degree and I figure that probably in three weeks, maybe another 16 or 17 articles, I'll probably know everything there is to know uh, about the human body and health and its treatment and care. And um, this is a very exciting thing for me. Uh, yeah, you're laughing and you should be, although some of you are laughing nervously like, really? Although that's another conversation we could have about how many self-appointed, self-educated experts are out there these days and the whole world seems to think that its opinion matters at this moment. No, actually, I found sites like WebMD really helpful for some basic descriptions, and, and I want to press beyond that, too. The, the word that's at the top of the screen, insecurity. There are many insecurities that we carried into this room today because we live with them every day, and just a little brief explanation or definition would include something that I did, in fact, uh, find helpful at WebMD. Insecurity is a feeling of inadequacy, and to be very specific, it, it might include not feeling uh, uh, that you're good enough or maybe even coming to the reality that you're not good enough for the task that's in front of you or whatever it might be. And there's uncertainty that follows with that, isn't there? That often produces anxiety, sometimes about our relationships or the goals that are before us, our ability to handle certain situations, and everybody deals with insecurity. This particular article goes on to say it can appear in 
all areas of life and come from a variety of causes. It might stem from a traumatic event, patterns of previous experience, social conditioning, learning rules by observing others or local environments such as school, work, or home. It can also stem from general instability. People who experience unpredictable upsets in daily life are more likely to feel insecure about ordinary resources and routines. On the other hand, insecurity can have no definite external cause. Instead, it can appear as a quirk of personality or brain chemistry. And the more I read, the more uncertain and insecure I felt about my understanding of insecurities. Like, where do these things come from? I thought it was as simple as this, or I thought it might be explained by that, but then I start thinking, like, maybe I have a brain chemistry issue. I never considered that. That makes me even more insecure about my insecurities. Now, in all seriousness, those insecurities, as we have been learning in Romans, ultimately go all the way back to the fall of humankind and the sin that Adam brought into the world, and we all participated with him, right? I mean, we'd like to point the finger of blame and say, it's his fault. Had we been there, we would have done something different, but that's just not true. Death, disease, political turmoil, economic difficulty, even the, even the physical weakness that you deal with every day, the aches and pains that you can't explain. I mean, everything that creates that sense of uncertainty in you and specifically brings insecurity into your life is traceable back to our sin. What's interesting, if you could go to WebMD and read the full article, I thought that it was, it was quite interesting that eventually they talked not just about uh, appropriate treatments that might be necessary, but it actually got to the point of saying one of the key things for dealing with insecurities has to do with strong and meaningful relationships. And we all know that. That's not like a big surprise, but e- even a world that's not trying to come at this problem from a biblical worldview recognizes something that God has designed into his creation and certainly has woven beautifully into the rescue of the gospel that he gives, and that is meaningful relationships. But let's be honest, some of the insecurities we face are the result of those failed relationships we've been in. It might have been an authority figure who should have led or protected or provided, who abandoned or abused. It could be a relationship with a a sibling or a best friend that was so helpful and meaningful and rich and then just life itself happened. It wasn't like there was a big fallout, but you look back on that with a sense of regret. And and nobody else has ever been able to kind of step in and, and fill that particular void. And it's left this void that, in a sense, is an insecurity. We know the value of relationships. But one of the powerful things that Paul is doing as he comes to the end of this particular chapter, and you know he didn't write in chapters and verses. that We did that to help us catalog and uh, organize the thoughts. But at this particular point in Paul's letter to the Romans, he has been moving beautifully through this doctrine of justification by faith alone, bringing us to these glorious conclusions, for instance, that there is no condemnation left for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ who've been brought into union with him. 
that even though indwelling sin is a real thing for us right now, the powerful presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is this gift of God designed to change you and me, to transform us and bring us into conformity with Jesus Christ. All of these gifts and works of God in salvation are culminating now at the end of this particular line of thought. And last week, we looked specifically at Romans 8, 28 through 30, and there were five particular components of God's work that are intended to anchor our souls in the midst of the deepest suffering. And those great truths are these, that God long ago in eternity past foreknew people like you and me. He predestined us for something special. And as Paul goes on to unpack it, he says, and in this lifetime, he's issued a divine summons. It's the call that he spoke of. And then fourthly, those that God calls, divinely summons out of sin, out of that dark slavery and bondage and captivity. Those that he calls, he justifies. And finally, those that he justifies, number five is he glorifies. And we're not there yet, but God speaks of it as if it's already done. So now, open your Bibles with me to Romans 8, and let's look at verses 31 through 39 in the few minutes that we have together this morning, because Paul is going to lead us out of this glorious truth of this is what God has done and is doing for you, dear saints. And in Romans 8, 31, if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, this is page 944, the very bottom, and then it's going to jump to page 945. Verse 31, Paul asks the question, what then shall we say to these things that, it, that is to this glorious work that God is doing? Eternity past, he was active. Presently, he's active. He will be active going into the future. Here it is. What then shall we say to these things? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It's interesting to me that, in a sense, to parallel the five particular points of God's work in saving us, foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying, he now poses five questions. And the answers are obvious, aren't they? Rhetorical in one sense, but they are doing, uh, they're, they're making a powerful point for us, and they're addressing some of the, some of the deepest insecurities that human beings wrestle with. And though these are not the exact questions as 
Paul phrases them, I, as I was meditating on this, week, on this truth this week, I was thinking in terms of how kind God is to use powerful truth like this to, to bring us to that place where, where we're face to face with our insecurities going, oh, it's not about my finding the answer to this problem or drumming up some kind of strength within myself or some strategy or scheme. It's about you and me listening to God himself step into the middle of our greatest securities and say, let me tell you who I am and what I have done and will do that answers every one of your greatest fears. The first question that Paul asks is, who can be against us? I can think of a lot of people and things that would come against us. There are many forms of opposition in this life. And I think all of us are, are wondering who, in fact, will defend me against opposition. Now, in context, the hardships of verse 35 describe kinds of opposition. They're opposition created by individuals and groups who are antagonistic to the gospel of Christ. To, to his person, to his work, and the enemies of verse 38, some of whom are powerful, unseen forces of evil. I mean, it, it's not like Paul is oblivious uh, to the reality of opposition in our world. But the hope of our hearts is that there is one who is greater than our opposition, and that one is not seated in this room bodily today. Do you know, even as I was meditating on this this week and thinking through, like, where do I feel opposition? Where have I experienced in my life? There are actually faces that emerged in my memory. And you've probably got some too. And if it's not faces, it could be voices from the past. Opposition is real, but here's the truth. It's not that you are stronger than your opposition. It's not that you're smarter it's not even that you have a healthy self-esteem. No, what's the grand truth that Paul puts forward at this particular point? It's this, God is for us. The God who created all that is, is for us. I love James 4 verse 6 that tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And, and if you look at the first part of that verse, it's actually a little scary and it, it should be. Because for God to oppose you means that God actually sets himself uh, like, a, like an army would set itself against its opponent. Some of you are sports people. Some of you are football. Like that season is, is about to begin and you're excited and, and looking forward to it. But, you know, think of this picture of God opposing you. It's like the ultimate defensive line and nobody's getting through him. When God opposes you, you are in trouble. But what's the opposite of this well when God gets on your side to use that football analogy whether you'd ever played one down or not when God is before in front of you clearing the way dealing with all of your opponents you know it's like touchdown every time now that doesn't mean that if if you just you know really believe hard enough that God's going to make all of your suffering go away no we're we got to keep it in the big perspective that he's laying down for us right now like he's saying yes you suffer now but remember what he said earlier that suffering is actually conforming you to the image of of my son that suffering is even designed by God if you will to be a, a means of, of taking you from what you once were to what he wants you to be that's how good and powerful he is that he can submit even the hardest things of life to his beautiful plans we were not gonna see it fully until eternity, but here's another promise, God is for you. 
And as James says, he gives grace to the humble. He gives his divine favor. It's undeserved favor. God is for us. There's a second question that emerges. Who will protect me against destitution? If you go back to the text and look at verse 32 with me, there's something quite beautiful and sobering all at the same time. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Woven into that little terminology that he did not spare his son means that God did not actually withhold harm from him. But intentionally, by design and decree, he delivered him up. And we know this terminology speaks very specifically of the cross. What's the greatest personal harm you can imagine? I can think of some really ugly circumstances. Crucifixion would be one of them. The cross, an instrument of torture designed not only to create suffering, maximum suffering, but the cross was designed to create maximum humility. It's why the victims were stripped naked, crucified in a public place. So whether it be family or friends or strangers, there they are. And not just exposed to shame, but exposed in their crimes. Because as Jesus was crucified, what was typical in those days is that the list of crimes would be nailed to a placard over the head of the one who was being crucified. Now, we know that Jesus was sinless, and the great crime that they recorded on his placard, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But you know, if you were crucified for your sins and they were just blared uh, to the public, I mean, that, that would be humiliation you would never want to experience. And when my heart runs down that pathway, I think I would rather endure a physical affliction or disease than to be harmed in that kind of complete exposure. And to be harmed in that way brings one not just to a place of financial, um, you know, or social destitution. I mean, it's like just the destruction of reputation of all that you are. What the word is telling us here is that God did not refrain from harming his son because it was God the Father pouring out his full cup of wrath on God the Son. He didn't spare him any of the shame. Didn't spare him any of the humiliation. Didn't soften one blow of his justice. It was all poured out on Jesus. In our souls we say that's not fair and that's actually actually accurate, it's not fair. But this gospel is not about what's fair because if it were just limited to that, then you and I would get exactly what we deserve and Jesus never would have died. This is a gospel of amazing grace. So Paul says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, gave him up to the ultimate harm. Now he backs away from that as if to say he's done the greatest thing possible. How will he not also with him graciously give us And those words almost seem contradictory at this point. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We had an all things kind of discussion last week, didn't we? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Well, here's another all things 
discussion that's underway. So if God did the greatest thing, the most extravagant thing, the most astonishing thing, the most lavish thing by giving his son up to the cross to pay the debt of your sin and mine, then, then what could possibly press God to a new limit? And the answer is nothing. Anything else we're asking him to do, anything else we're, we're seeking his blessing for is small in comparison, really. He's done the greatest thing, and he does it graciously. Some of us still struggle to believe that God would actually enjoy giving us anything. Maybe because we grew up in an environment where either gifts were few or if they were given, they were given begrudgingly. And some of us project that onto God himself as if you know we, we, we really know that we don't deserve it, but we're kind of like beggars showing up on his doorstep, you know, just kind of knocking, hoping that we don't interrupt him and upset him. But that is, that is not the God of the Bible. He delights to do us good. And this word graciously is given for our added encouragement that he loves to bestow things willingly. It's part of his nature. What an extravagant demonstration that he, uh, that he will not leave us destitute. Here's a third question we wrestle with. Who will defend me against accusation? Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We're using the terminology of a court of law once again, the charge here has reference to an accusation that one might level against another in a legal sense. It could even include an ordinary social setting. Sometimes those are the harder ones to deal with when there are accusations being thrown around about our character or our motive. And, and we, we want to rise up and defend ourselves and say, that's not what I meant or that's not what I intended. But it gets so confusing and frustrating that at times we just, we just walk away. But what of those accusations that are founded? Again, what, what would be listed against you and me in a court of God's righteousness? And, and there are many. That's why one author writes, the believer might well be concerned about his sins and wonder whether in the end they might prevail against him. But Paul is sure that they will not since it is God who justifies. The believer's justification can never be overthrown. And isn't that a powerful word of encouragement that says, that that assures us God will not abandon you and me even to the real accusations that could be brought against us for our sin. No, those have been dealt with in Christ. The sacrifice has been paid. Atonement has been made. And God, in the great court of eternity, has rendered a final legal judgment. You are not prosecutable again. You are not able to be brought under condemnation when God says you are righteous for Christ's sake. That's what's loaded into that phrase. It is God who justifies. It is God who pronounces the final verdict. And in one sense, it does not matter what any other person on planet Earth or what, what other demonic force, including Satan himself, might bring against you in accusation. It is God who justifies. That relieves you and me of the pressure to justify ourselves, doesn't it? We, we should obey God. We should should seek to love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we should seek to love others as we love ourselves. Those are the two great commands Jesus told us. But even there, we're not doing it to justify ourselves, whether in God's sight or in the sight of somebody else. Some of you have lived in a performance-based 
family or society for a long time and everybody's keeping score and you're always trying to measure up. That's not the gospel way. That's not the, the, the way of grace. When God declares you to be righteous, he says you have the perfect righteousness of Jesus. I know you're not perfect yet, but I've got you. I'm not gonna bring a, a sentence of judgment against you again. We, I finished that, did that at the cross. Jesus took that away for you. Now, you're my child earlier in Romans 8, right? Children of God, joint heirs with Jesus. So we go live like it. That's freedom. Some of you may have been falsely accused. You want so badly for it to be made right. First of all, it's right in heaven. The one court that really matters, it, it's, it's a done deal. Your sense of justice moves you sometimes and you still want to like go back or revisit or write a letter or make a phone call and Paul will tell us in Romans 13, as much as possible, you live, you, you live at peace with all people, but that little phrase, as much as possible, tells you it's not always possible. But you rest your heart in this great truth. It is God who justifies. Number four, who will relieve me from condemnation? Verse 34 asks the question, who is to condemn? Do you know in Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of our brothers. And this, I saved it for here because it really ties in with where we just were, but also with this as well because it has to do with, with declaring guilt or pronouncing guilt. And in Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan is described as accusing the brothers night and day before our God. It's one thing to be accused on planet Earth, but if we could actually see just the hatred and venom and hostility that Satan himself brings into the court of heaven every day, and you know, you know exactly why he's doing it, because we give him reason to go into the presence of God and say, have you seen Danny Brooks lately? Have you seen fill in your name? And the answer is yes, God does see all of that. I mean, it's, it, it's not like he's making stuff up and that often opens the door to that insecurity that, well, maybe God will condemn me one day. It's not just Satan. Sometimes our own consciences accuse us and condemn us because there's real stuff in our past that we're ashamed of, embarrassed of. Some of it we know clearly falls in the category of sin. Some of it's just goofy stuff that we're like, oh, you know, I know that's what 12-year-olds do, but that, I'm, please, you know, family, friends, don't bring that up again. So you have all kinds of things where you just, you, you feel the weight of your shame. It's not the stuff of, you know, adolescence and childhood that keeps most of us awake at night. It's the stuff that we really think that God himself might still be angry about. But where does Paul take us? What is the eternal answer to this question, who is to condemn? It's simply this, that it is Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding, indeed is interceding for us. And there are four aspects of Christ's work that, that tell us this one great truth. Jesus Christ has done it all. Jesus Christ is sufficient. He died. We talked about that a few moments ago and we rejoice in that. But do you know that when he was raised miraculously from the tomb and he was literally brought from the dead, back to life again. It was the sign that God had fully accepted the work of atonement, that nothing could be added to it. Because 
The scriptures tell us that he was raised for our justification. But then look at where Paul goes on from that. He was raised, but now he's at the right hand of God. Well, you know what? To be, to be seated at the right hand of God is not only a position of honor, it's a position of great authority. And what does Jesus do with that authority? Well, there are multiple things that he does. He's described as ruling and reigning from that position of honor and authority in heaven. But look at where Paul takes this. It was a great blessing and joy to learn just a few verses prior that when we don't know how to pray, particularly in the middle of our suffering, that the Spirit himself undertakes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, enters into our suffering and our confusion and uncertainty so intensely, so personally, that he prays with those beautiful groans. But now we read, that the son who died the death we deserved rose miraculously from the grave, has been exalted to this place of authority at the right hand of God, uses that position of authority and honor to pray for people like you and me. Oh, if we could hear Jesus praying for us today, wouldn't that settle our hearts and bring calm and peace and joy? I wish that God would just, you know, send a little audio file down from heaven once in a while and say, oh, dear child of mine, listen to your elder brother pray. He hasn't done that. All he's said, though, is he's doing it. And Paul added that little word, indeed. Lest you and I should say, really? Yes. Yes, indeed. God will not leave you under any condemnation, not from his throne, and he will not leave you under the condemnation of others, though it be Satan himself or some other enemy. Jesus is indeed interceding. It made me think of the Apostle John's word in his first letter of the New Testament, 1 John 2, verse one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that, John? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Who will relieve me of this condemnation? The Lord himself. And fifthly, look at verse 35. Who can assure me that there is no final separation? Because one of our insecurities is in life, just in general, is to be abandoned. And some of you have experienced that. It's devastating, it's painful a parent, a spouse, even a child. It, 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 it wounds the soul in a way that leaves that uncertainty and, and deep insecurity. But, but the Lord very kindly brings us to a place and he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. And then, as the, as the author and commentator John Stott notes, that it Paul separates the following list into two different categories. The first we would describe as the adversities uh, themselves, and the second might be the adversaries, and I found that helpful for organizing these particular thoughts. Look at the text with me, uh, because now, first of all, Paul gives us a, an example of some of the adversities that we might experience. Tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. All of those are things that would cause legitimate worry and concern. I, I don't want to experience any of that. We're experiencing a severe drought in Utah, and it has all of us concerned, doesn't it? 
We're taking measures at this point to conserve water because we know water is essential to life. And we're not at a place yet where it's a crisis where you, you, know, you can only use water to drink, but that would be the thing we would preserve. I've been a little dismayed as I've read some headlines this week of, of you know, great celebrities who don't bathe very often now. And that, you know, that's created a little social media firestorm. And I just think, oh, God, please help us, rescue us from this stupidity. But you know, if it came down to taking a shower, choosing between taking a shower or having you know, eight ounces of water, that's a no-brainer, right? Because water is essential to life. So you know, the, the kinds of things that Paul has put forward, I mean, these are not the small inconveniences of life. No, these would be devastating circumstances to experience. And some of the people he's writing to were actually in that kind of testing and, and tribulation and stress. Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, in verse 36, when he says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's interesting that he reaches back probably almost 900 or 1,000 years before when this psalm was written, and it's a reminder to us that God's people have always suffered But God's point to us is that not one of them has been abandoned because of that suffering or lost to it. He really is with us through it all. And remember, he is powerful enough to submit even the greatest suffering to his greater plan to make us like Jesus. We gotta remember verse 17 from Romans 8. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, if Christ has called you to enter his suffering, that's actually a good sign that you really are one of God's. Look at verses 38 and 39 because there are some formidable adversaries and they seem to come in pairs. There's the, the pair of natural order, neither death nor life. The spiritual realm, angels, rulers, Ruler specifically has reference to any supernatural being besides God that acts in a ruling or commanding capacity. Uh, it's, it's the same term used in Ephesians 6 verse 12 where Paul writes, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood but against principalities uh, or against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And beloved, those forces are alive and well in this valley, aren't they? There's stress that some of you experience that goes beyond the natural realm. There are supernatural forces that would love to separate you from God on this day, that would love to separate you from your faith, separate you from the Christ who died and rose again for your salvation. But God's word is they're just not that powerful. His purpose to save you and the power of his love to keep you is far greater Then there's the pair that seems to represent time itself, things present or things to come. All the unknowns of the future that make us tremble. Is the economy gonna collapse? That guy that I saw in that advertisement Friday who said I better buy a bunch of gold because we all know what's gonna happen. Like, is, is that what I should do? You know, when you're God's child, you don't have to be on top of every little contingency that might or might not unfold. You rest in him. Because ultimately he's saying, I'm with you. You've been united to me through Christ in an inseparable relationship. Then verse 39, height or depth, something that has reference to the expanse of space itself. 
And then as if our minds might go to other places, Paul anticipates that by saying, nor anything else in all creation. So whatever is left in your imagination that you feel like Paul forgot about or couldn't be aware of or you know, just had not experienced enough hurts in life to really understand the, the difficulty and sorrow that you're in. No, he kind of comes back and says, you know, I've given you a pretty comprehensive list, but let's just go ahead and say anything else you could think of. None of it. None of it has the power or the capacity, the the wherewithal to dislodge you from God's love. Look at verse 38. He uses this particular term. I am sure, that is, I am persuaded, confident of the truthfulness of these statements I'm putting before you. So whether it be going back to verse 28, we know all things work together for good, or moving forward now, I'm... I am persuaded or I am sure of these things or culminating in verse 39 as it does, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God couldn't say it any clearer. God couldn't say it with any stronger conviction. God couldn't say it uh, with, with any greater authority behind it. It just now simply comes to this question, will you believe it? You don't even have to believe it perfectly. You don't have to understand it comprehensively. God's not about to pass out a systematic theology exam. I I had teachers who, bless his heart, I I love him in the Lord, but he he was a great teacher. Uh, Dr. Bell. Some of you would recognize that name. I'm also aware there are a few people even back east who who watch our live stream or watch the recordings later and they'll chuckle to themselves. But that man could ask questions in a way where you questioned your own salvation on an exam. I'm thankful that God's not passing out even one of Dr. Bell's exams at this point where depending on whatever grade you get in, in your comprehensive and mature understanding, then he'll make good on this promise. No, even for those of you who say, oh, I'm still really nervous about the future, or I still feel really badly about the past. You know, even in your uncertainty or the weakness of your faith, God's gonna carry you to the end because you are his. But you would do yourself a favor to just rest right now and say, no condemnation, no accusation, no separation. I can rest. It doesn't mean your car won't break down this afternoon. And that would be a high form of stress for some of you. It doesn't mean there's a guarantee of a job actually waiting for you tomorrow morning when you go back in and say, what? It doesn't mean you won't be diagnosed with a very serious disease or that you'll never have family issues again or that your marriage will be perfect from you know, this day forward. No, we suffer. But we don't suffer pointlessly and we don't suffer as those who've been orphaned by God himself. God says, I love you. And nothing is able to separate you from my love for you, which is in Christ Jesus. These five assurances of of God's love carry us back to the cross. Paul planted it right in the middle of where we were. That cross is the ultimate guarantee. And the cross is what we need to look at even for the next few minutes. And I want you to meditate on these particular truths. And as we share the Lord's table together here in just a few moments, I want you to see the blood, or see the bread and the cup, which are symbols of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ through the lens of Romans 8. This is a really sweet and personal reminder. You, you need to see this as coming directly from Jesus. He's the one who first thought of taking these very ordinary 
of ordinary symbols and just loading them, just supercharging them with gospel meaning. In the same way that your physical body needs bread, your heart needs the bread of life. And Jesus is that bread. In the same way that your physical body needs to have that liquid refreshment, so our hearts need this cup. And I've shared this with you before, but even in the context of Romans 8, where God did not spare Jesus from the full harm of sin, there was a beautiful exchange on that day, and and the two cups were traded cup of wrath that you and I earned and deserved and should be drinking today was placed into the hand of Jesus and he drank it to the dregs and a cup of blessing was placed in your hand and mine and that's what this little cup represents today that's love it's love that nourishes and love that blesses